Welcome to the fifth episode of Coronavirus The Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding COVID-19. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions, and with me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin this show with the most recent and relevant facts concerning the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. Uh, What should listeners know about the week that was? Jeremy, last week we predicted that by today, There would be 20,000 deaths, and the number this morning is 22,000. Listeners should understand that the deaths reflect the prevalence of COVID-19 three to four weeks ago, not something that's happening today. As such, this coming week will be very instructive. The question will be whether the number of people dying will go up by about the same number as last week, let's say 12,000 more to 34,000, or whether it will double, as also happened last week, to 44,000. This is the key to see whether social distancing has impacted the growth rate, I'll say from making it exponential to arithmetic. Social distancing doesn't impact the virus, but only how fast it spreads and the way that we can know that in a world in which the United States has yet to have the necessary testing equipment is actually by looking back at the death rate. And of course, this is a multiple week retrospective view. Five weeks ago yesterday, I went to a Sunday morning birthday brunch at a wonderful resort in Rhode Island. The restaurant was filled, and people served themselves from a wealth of brunch options displayed along tables. At that time, people were aware that the coronavirus existed, but that the data appeared to be that this virus, although somewhat more dangerous and lethal than the annual flu, was less contagious. Based upon those two facts, had you asked me to predict what would happen, I would have said that by the end of the coronavirus season, that approximately 60,000 people would have died, since in a typical flu year, that number is between 40 and 60,000 but that would happen over a moderately long time period. What has really changed about the coronavirus and what has led to the the requirements around social distancing is that the ease of spread is far more, probably close to three times greater than the flu, which means that the number of cases double in a very short time period that had been two and a half 
to three days. What we've seen from this week's data is that social distancing has slowed the spread. If if it had not, we'd be crossing the threshold now with hospitals being totally overwhelmed and far more loss of life from the inability to provide care than the virus itself. As we said in last week's episode, social distancing prolongs the pandemic rather than helping us beat the virus and ending it. And we're seeing that in the numbers that are being released on a daily basis. You know, Jeremy, it's been interesting, the feedback from last week's show on which we provided the audience with a specific game plan, a specific strategy to slowly ease restrictions once we had assured that hospitals were fully staffed and ready to go. Over the past seven days, I've heard from dozens of individuals who said that the approach we recommended was too fast and would cost lives. And I've also heard from dozens of others said the plan was too slow and would cost lives. Unfortunately, both are potentially right. This week to come will be very instructive as to getting a first glimpse of when we can begin to move forward. Having said that, I want listeners to be aware social distancing is essential today and that most likely the earliest prudent time to ease it will be the end of May, not its beginning. Robbie, the newest reports uh, on the news and everything are saying that deaths from COVID-19 will be far fewer than originally thought. And instead of the, you know, 100 to 250,000 deaths, uh, expecting it to be around 60,000 deaths. Did you read those reports? And, and what, where's your head at with that? Does this mean we were overreacting the whole time or what? No, Jeremy, I think you're referring to a statement from the government that we would experience 60,000, not 80,000 deaths. And that was widely distributed through the media. What most people, whether they got the information from newspapers or on social media, failed to hear, what they missed was the qualifier by August. Social distancing flattens the curve. With adequate response, as many communities have done, we can diminish how quickly people get the disease, and as a consequence, how quickly they die. The total deaths are still likely to be in the 100 to 200,000 range, a statistic listeners need to understand. What is going to change about it is when those deaths occur, assuming that we do not have a vaccine or very effective treatment to not just take care of people who are most critical, but actually prevent people from developing the infection in the first place. Mayor de Blasi of New York said yesterday that we don't know if there will be a second wave. The answer is there will be, although it's possible, depending upon how social distancing is eased, that it will actually be more of a continuation of the first What listeners need to understand is this is a contagious virus that whenever people become exposed to it, assuming they don't have immunity, either from a prior episode 
in which they have recovered and developed the antibodies or a vaccine that produces similar type antibodies, they will come down with it. And a certain percentage of the population currently thought to be somewhere around one half of 1% will die from pulmonary problems. The only way to avoid it is for our nation to wait more than 12 months until there's a vaccine and hope that the damage done and the loss of life from the other causes that will result from social isolation and will result from psychological and interpersonal difficulties won't be even greater. Robbie, there are people talking about not flattening the curve, but crushing it. What do they mean and how could it happen? People are slowly realizing that flattening the curve doesn't change how many people will become infected and how many will die for the virus itself. What it does is avoid even more people dying when hospitals are overwhelmed and medical care can't be provided. Crushing is a concept of ending the infection. As we've said, there are two ways to do it. The first is a vaccine or a medication capable of protecting people from developing coronavirus in the first place. The second is finding everyone who may have COVID-19 and all of their contacts, testing everyone, isolating those infected, and quarantining those who have been exposed. It is why there is so much focus on testing. You may have seen, Jeremy, that South Korea has agreed to send the U.S. 600,000 test kits, something that never should have been needed had we allowed labs in the United States to move forward with commercial production in early February, but that time has passed us. Proponents of the concept of crushing it say that we should not ease social distancing until, in quotes, the infection rate is close to zero. I don't believe at this point that that can happen. First, the magnitude of the number of people who need to be tested would be massive. Second, people can be infected without having symptoms. Third, people are contagious before they show signs. As such, we need to test all Americans on a frequent basis. Obtaining the swab that's needed for the testing is painful. And as a result, 30% of the time, the test proves inaccurate with people who are infected having a negative result. Extensive testing would help to slow the spread and expanded testing of everyone who has symptoms is essential and something we can't yet do, but something we must do, certainly have the capacity to do so before we can ease social distancing. However, as a strategy to end the pandemic, I see it as helpful, but far from a real solution. It sounds great. It sounds as though it's the perfect answer. I think it will be a helpful part, but it certainly will not lead us where we need to go eliminating the virus, that will require the vaccine or a sufficient number of people having been infected with antibodies who now demonstrate herd immunity. This week on our Fixing Healthcare podcast, we had uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee 
on. Uh, can you summarize what he said for our listeners who have not yet tuned into that show? Sid is an oncologist, virologist, and Pulitzer Prize winning author. His book, The Emperor of All Maladies, The History of Cancer, is one of the best books I've ever read. In the podcast, Sid talks about his recently published New Yorker Magazine article on COVID-19. And he hypothesizes an interesting idea that possibly what explains the broad range of responses people have with the disease, some demonstrating no symptoms, some demonstrating mild symptoms, some becoming intensively ill, some rapidly going on to lung failure, may be a result of dose exposure. He talks about other viruses like measles and smallpox, for which if you only had a tiny bit of exposure, your disease was most likely to be very mild, whereas if you had a lot of virus entering your body at one given time period, it often proved to be fatal. And possibly that's what we're seeing right now in COVID-19. And one of the things that bothers me a lot is our failure as a nation to protect our healthcare workers, for they are the ones most likely to come in contact with a maximal amount of virus. Imagine taking care of someone who's having trouble breathing and you've got to put a tube down into their throat and as the tube gets passed, they invariably cough and a tremendous amount of virus is passed into the air and onto your face in a very close range. We're actually seeing a disproportionate number of healthcare workers becoming very sick, and given the age demographics of many of them, dying when others in a similar demographic band are having much less severe problems. So Sid may very well be right, and this may be a key to our understanding. There's still so much more to go. I invite listeners to tune into the Fixing Healthcare podcast to hear the full range of topics he covers, including his work around cancer and his most recent TV two-part series on the gene based on another New York Times bestseller that he wrote. There has been a wide range in how different countries have addressed this pandemic around the globe. Uh, what can we learn from the successes and failures of other countries? We're only beginning to understand various aspects of this coronavirus. But I would say so far we've learned three lessons about pandemics in general. The first is that a virus can be contained but it takes massive diligence and restrictions on people. We've seen it happen in China, in Wuhan, and we've seen it in Hong Kong and Singapore. The second lesson is that a virus can be managed by social distancing and testing, assuming you have social order as in Germany, whereas a result 
of its approach, there's been a very low mortality. The third lesson is that in countries like Italy, that moves late and ineffectively with an elderly population that smokes, the loss of life proves tragic. At this point in the United States, COVID-19 is here and we've got to find our way of being able to best manage this pandemic inside our country. But I think these lessons from other countries will help us as we decide what we want to do, the limits to which we're willing to go, the sacrifices we're willing to make the next time a virus affects countries around the globe. And make no mistake about it, there will be a next time. Jeremy, as a businessman, you're in contact with people across the community every day. Are people becoming more or less optimistic about the future? I would say that the best way to sum it up is overall, I think people are becoming more, uh, I don't know if this is the right word for it, but cynical. I think, you know, that report about the lowered uh, death rates. And I also think, you know, the, the, the short term span that Americans have in this day of, you know, social media and 24 hour news, the, the vibe I'm getting from people that I talk to are that they're just kind of over it at this point, you know. They were ready to go visit extended family on Easter. Some people I know did. Some people I know did, you know, stayed home and did not visit family. But I think, again, in the media, you're seeing more and more of the, okay, let's get the economy open. Okay, let's get the economy open. Okay, let's get the economy open. And the fact that I don't think, you know, you had your plan in place, but I don't think the government has really put a solid plan in place yet. And, you know, talking from you and watching videos by Dog and, and talking to people like Paul Offit and others, it sounds like a real effective treatment out of something that already exists is a long shot. Um, and it also sounds like uh, a vaccine in 12 to 18 months is an absolute best case scenario and pretty much not that realistic. Um, and if that's going to be the case... I read that overall death numbers in the United States are down because people aren't driving, people are staying at home, people are doing less risky activity. But I think at this point, people are just like, well, if we're not going to have a vaccine soon, if we're not going to have an effective treatment potentially ever or anytime soon, let's just peel the bandaid off and get out there. That's, that's kind of the sentiment I have. And even, you know, talking to other people, they're like, well, I'm not going to wear a mask in public. You know, it's a it's a way to be defiant to show I'm not one of the, the sheep or one of the scared people or whatever. But that being said, I think about probably, you know, going to the grocery store the other day, I think a little over half the people there did have masks on. So it's kind of this weird mix of some people are accepting it and others are like, whatever, I just want to be done. To the point you made, Jeremy, there was a report out today that Brazil has canceled its chloroquine, that malaria drug that people were talking about a couple of weeks ago uh, because of some cardiac side effects. I think you're absolutely right. There's unlikely to be a miracle approach. There may be medications that come along that, as I say, will help people who are the most critically ill 
But in terms of there being a miracle drug that's going to prevent people from coming down with the disease, from the prevent people from coming down with the most critical cases of the disease, I think that's such a long shot. We should keep our eye on it. We can always hope and pray, but we should not plan. I think we have to recognize that we need to make these decisions in the transition and that the real solution is over a year away. It's called the vaccine. We know what it is. We know the kinds of structure it needs to happen. But between here and then, we need to do development, extensive testing to prove that it doesn't have very harmful side effects that it could, given that it most likely will be aimed against the RNA in the virus. And humans do have RNA in our bodies. It's not our genetic material, but it's part of the protein production sequence, and then mass manufacturing, 12 to 18 months is the most likely estimate for when we'll have a treatment that will protect people from becoming sick should they become directly exposed to this virus. Uh, do we even know for sure that we can have a vaccine that would be effective against against the novel coronavirus? I know I saw that there are no uh, coronavirus vaccines for people yet because SARS and MERS, we basically stopped before, you know, we needed to have a vaccine for them so that that never got that far along in the process. The other coronaviruses are common cold, but that the only coronaviruses uh, vaccines that we use is if I, if I remember right, were in pigs and dogs, not people. Nothing is ever guaranteed but given the genetic advances that we have, where we know the exact sequencing of the genetic material, the RNA inside this virus, the likelihood is pretty high that we can come up with a solution. As I said, though, the problem is going to be making certain that the virus does not have side effects, complications that prove problematic for people who take it. And that's why it's going to require a moderate amount of time. As you point out, the coronavirus uh, that provides the common cold, the challenge there is that the immunity seems to not last for very long. Some of that because the virus continually changes. Some of it because our own body's response to it seems to be less long-lasting. And at the other end, as you pointed out, we never went on to develop a vaccine against MERS and SARS because we were able to identify the people who had it and contain it. That's why this current coronavirus, COVID-19, is so different than all of the others. But I'm optimistic that we will find an effective vaccine. You may know that testing has already begun in the Washington state area, but Listeners should not have their hopes up too high, but listeners need to remember that it takes a full year at least to go through all the steps that are necessary to make it broadly available. We talked about success and failure in other countries a second ago. One country that I think the rip the bandaid off, this isn't as bad as everybody says it is, uh, one country that the people that have that mindset are is looking at um, is Sweden. Um, can you talk a bit about that um, and what Sweden's doing and what makes it so 
different and why they did it because they didn't do pretty much any of the mandatory shutdown of restaurants or, you know, businesses are still open. People are still going to those businesses. Um, can you talk about, is that approach a good one? Um, and, and, and why it's been such a model looked at by others, but also some of the other ideas we've heard about the opening of the U.S. economy from various leaders like uh, Bill Gates and Joe Biden. Uh, what are your thoughts? In this show, Coronavirus, The Truth, we try to go back to the facts. Now, it's not fully known either the transmissibility or the lethality, but we're having a better and better understanding on a week-by-week basis. This is not a question of ripping off the Band-Aid or not. This is a question of what is the biology and what is the mathematics. To the extent that our current numbers are accurate, that under normal social distancing, that one person will give it to three people, that implies that we're going to see an exponential growth and to the extent that the data is accurate, that this virus is somewhere around five times as dangerous, lethal, as the flu virus, simply continuing to allow businesses to stay open, large events to happen, is a bad strategy. And I've heard actually that Sweden's starting to have difficulties as the number of cases have grown. The reason why social distancing is so necessary, we've said it so many times in this show, but I'm not, I worry that people don't fully grasp it, is not to change the death rate from the virus itself. That's intrinsic in the RNA inside the surrounding protein and lipid capsule. It's to stop overwhelming our hospitals with people requiring critical care and ventilators as a result of that virus. And there is no way around that. If this virus were less lethal, similar to the flu, we could have done that. If it was less transmissible, we could have done it. With the current virus, if you do that, you will see Rapid increases, as we've seen in Seattle, New York, now New Orleans, Detroit, where the numbers simply become untreatable, unmanageable at any given time. And so flattening the curve becomes not only the best response, but the only response. But I have, like you, read some of the recommendations people have brought forward. And to be very blunt, I think they are a bit of fantasy and they are unlikely to be successful. The ones I've heard about depend upon broad testing. And testing is is valuable for multiple reasons. It predicts when hospitals may be overwhelmed, when social distancing can be increased and decreased, But I predict, as we've said, that it will be impossible because of all the aspects of the virus itself, how many people are non-symptomatic 
or the virus can be transmitted before they have symptoms, and because the testing itself is not simple, it's uncomfortable with a significant number of false negatives. All of the proposals being pushed are designed around the concept that we can bring this virus to its knees, and that I do not believe will happen. We need to recognize that before this entire process is over, unless there is a vaccine, many Americans will become sick from the disease and about half of 1% of them will die as a consequence of that. I wish this were different and I know it's an uncomfortable and inconvenient truth, but that's simply the reality. We can talk around the issue, but unless we're willing to wait the full 12 to 18 months, we simply have to accept that people will develop it, that people will become sick, and that until enough people have immunity, what's called herd immunity, the virus will continue to spread. I think this idea that we can open and shut social distancing, I think is naive. I can't imagine that a business would open on Monday, close on Thursday, reopen two weeks later and close two weeks later. You got to hire staff. You got to order food. You've got to do so many different things that this phase in and phase out idea I think is problematic. We've had a great difficulty getting people to socially isolate. Now that they're socially isolated, it's going to be hard to get them to go back out and public if they think there's a danger out there. And once they're back out in the public, it's going to be hard to bring them back inside. I think this idea that you can turn on and off the spigot as you might on a faucet is just, I'll say, overly simplistic. I hate to use those words, but I think people are trying to find a way that is relatively painless. And the truth when it comes to coronavirus is there are no fully painless solutions. My belief is that what we need to do is make sure that we have adequate hospital capacity. We have to make sure that we have enough understanding of the prevalence of the virus in a given area and be sure that there's a safety zone between that which exists today and that which would happen should the virus become more prevalent. And that having done that, we need to allow easing of social distancing in a progressive way, starting with keeping people six feet apart in small businesses, in restaurants, having staff that are wearing masks to protect customers, and then on a periodic basis, continuing to take restrictions away as we allow more and more people to gather in a given area, as we allow the larger businesses to start bringing back employees. I think in some areas, and we've talked about it in previous podcasts, like large arenas, that's not going to happen until we have a vaccine. People may not like that idea, but we're not going to bring 50,000 people together in one location, knowing that three weeks later, the local hospital could easily be overwhelmed 
We need a specific game plan with a date for it to start, with measures that will be followed, and a slow, progressive, continuous easing with ongoing monitoring to make sure that in any specific given location, we don't overwhelm the capacity to provide the care. And as a consequence, not just that people die from the virus, but die from our inability to provide care to individuals who otherwise would live, but for whom this simply is not a critical care bed or a ventilator. Robbie, what do you see as the biggest remaining questions about COVID-19? Jeremy, so much remains unclear about this virus. On the other hand, we're only a few months into experiencing it and researching it and being able to do the epidemiology required. But I'll give you a few of the questions that I think about often. First, why do some people seem to have no symptoms or an incredibly mild case when others move quickly to lung failure? Why are children seemingly spared? Do those who die do so from a poor immunologic response? Or do some people die from what's called cytokine storm or an over-response of the immune system? Why is this virus seemingly persistent despite warmer weather? Will the virus mutate significantly in the near future? And if so, will it become more or less lethal? How long will it take to create and manufacture a vaccine? Will any of the treatments currently being examined prove effective not just to help people who are most critically ill, but to defend off developing the infection in the first place? And a seemingly easy to answer question that we still don't know the answer to is how many people in the United States have been infected and how great is their immunity and how long will it last? We will continue to explore these questions in coronavirus, the truth. More on all of this next week. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much for listening to Coronavirus The Truth. Have a great day.